You're listening to Accounted For, the Canadian podcast that explores the intangibles of every career. I'm your host, Daniel Lee. Hello, hello. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to Accounted For. This podcast is brought to you by OMD Ventures, my platform focused on everything human capital investing. Uh, check out weekly articles on redefining the status quo in work and life, as well as my daily learnings on becoming healthy, wealthy, and wise, all on my website, oldmandan.com. So subscribe and be part of the community. Also, please help the podcasts and your friends that you love by telling one friend this week about Accounted For. It'll make my week as well as your friends, I'm sure. Also, what would really help me improve the podcast and the overall OMD Ventures platform is to learn who you, my listeners, are. I made a survey that I would really appreciate if you filled out. It should take no more than five minutes, and you can remain anonymous. Just provide me some valuable intel on who, just your kind of demographic, what you do, why you even come on, and things you enjoy about the podcast. And so it, I really appreciate it if you can make the time to head on over to oldmandan.com slash podcast. I provide all the links to the survey and the newsletter in the show not show notes below and so today's interview is with francisco lung the managing partner and portfolio manager of coin capital coin capital is the investment management arm of coin square and they're creating pot products where retail investors like you and i can just invest in companies that are utilizing blockchain technology and other f- companies that are using kind of more on the forefront of technology it might not necessarily have to be blockchain it seems from what francisco is telling me francisco's career story is one about tenacity and perseverance he started out in computer science and joined ibm after the pop of the dot-com bubble and so he's been doing that for about six years and then he goes up to do his mba to enter the capital markets and the world of stock investing amid the financial bubble popping in oh wait so this is a guy who had to withstand, I would say, um, two crises. And that alone, I think, requires a lot of tenacity to just go through that and just live through it. And he had an unorth- unorthodox background breaking into the public markets. And so he talks about how he just leveraged the Rotman MBA alumni network to grab as many as like 120 coffees in three months. That's insane. And that's just how many coffees he grabbed. So then I can only imagine how many emails he had to send out we talk about the value of building relationships and how continuing to focus on cultivating these meaningful relationships actually helped him become a portfolio manager in his dream role. And then we also then go into the decision-making process he made in leaving this high-paying world of finance to enter the ambiguous world of startups and cryptocurrencies and what really propelled him to make such an uncommon and difficult decision. This was really a fun conversation, and Francisco is also just very passionate, I think, about helping people in their own career journeys, and you can just really sense it when he talks about his stories and the kind of thought process that he had as he was making different decision points, and I really do hope that you can extract as much value out of it as I did when I spoke with him. So here is my conversation with Francisco Lung. (music) 
Hey everyone, welcome back to Accounted For. Today on the podcast, we have Francisco Lang, the managing partner and portfolio manager of Coin Capital. Hey Francisco, thanks for coming on the podcast. Hey Dan, thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. And so for our listeners, they might have gotten a brief idea of what CoinSquare was um, through Martin Hauck's episode, episode 31, and Coin Capital is affiliated with CoinSquare. So can you kind of go through how that affiliation works as well as what does Coin Capital do then? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, so as some of your listeners probably know, CoinSquare is really on its way to becoming uh, a 21st century financial institution focused on around the digital currency and digital asset space. So really as a, as a strategy to really build out that vision, um, part of it is really being able to access a lot of the traditional services and offerings that a bank would have and then offer that out to our clients. So that's kind of how the Coin Capital uh, organization or subsidiary came about. So we are the asset management subsidiary of CoinSquare in that we have um, you know, 300,000 clients on the CoinSquare platform. And a lot of them are looking to diversify away from the traditional uh, digital currencies really into products that could be on the peripheral, like a blockchain ETF, for example, or a, you know, a venture capital fund. So the goal of Coin Capital is really to become this leading technology asset manager that can cater to all Canadians and offer a diverse set of product offerings. Everything from um, investment products in the seed stage to venture capital to private equity, uh, eventually to mature companies that would sit within an ETF. And that's kind of our goal. You know, we feel that in Canada, that's very much missing. Um, you may have some venture capital companies that are creating products for accredited investors, uh, high net worth clients and institutions. Um, but for the general retail you know, consumer investor, there really isn't um, something for them. And you may have uh, some of the larger asset managers who offer a broad variety of funds, and then they will launch a technology-focused offering, but we don't feel that they truly have the expertise behind it. Whereas within Coin Capital and CoinSquare, uh, you know, we are a true fintech company and we're an asset manager within that. Uh, we have developers that are in-house we live and breathe technology. And you know, my earlier background was, a, was in computer science. So that really brings about some authenticity in terms of how we think about investment products, the type of funds that we're gonna launch. Um, and so we wanna become that all-in-one solution for a Canadian looking for technology investments. Got it. So it's, I guess it, that's, uh, that's actually really interesting to hear because I think the initial bias I had was because of you know, Coin Capital being part of CoinSquare that Oh, is it a crypto-only fund? And so are they only investing in you know, just all the different kinds of cryptocurrencies? But it seems like you're just hitting the full technology bucket altogether. Like, that's that's right. the goal, at least. That's right. And we get that a lot. And initially, the, you know, the word coin capital, you know, uh, when, when someone hears about that, they immediately think that maybe it's really just cryptocurrencies. But yeah, that's not it. We, you know, we're offering that broad suite of products. You know, at some point, we'll do something on the cryptocurrency side. Uh, we actually have uh, two indices that are live for the, for the next, uh, last 12 months, where we're tracking the top four cryptocurrencies on an equal weight and uh, market cap weighted basis. So these are index products that eventually we could structure uh, fund offerings around that, whether it's an ETF, whether it's a private fund for someone who wants exposure to cryptocurrency, we could offer that. Um, but it's just one of our products that we have, and we intend to, to really capture the entire spectrum of technology investing. Got it. And yeah, I think there really isn't any way for other 
um, just retail investors to actually take part in any private deals, at least mm-hmm. in Canada, from my knowledge. I think yeah. in the States, there's a few who are allowing people to try to be part of like private equity kind of deals. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, mostly they're just tech ETFs that, that are just basically just tracking a NASDAQ or they're all yeah. market cap weighted. And yeah. Yeah, 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 and if we look at some of the you know other ETF providers in the Canadian space, and again they're just they seem to be just chasing whatever theme is the hot theme of the month, mm. uh, like a flavor of the month. So one one month they're launching marijuana ETF because that was you know everybody's talking about that, and then a month later it's a blockchain ETF, and a month later it's something else. Um, whereas our focus is 100% going to be in technology. We're going to bring about offerings that are unique to the marketplace. Um, so hopefully, you know, that's something that Canadians can eventually access for us. We launched our first ETFs um, in September of uh, 2018, so last year. And, the, you know, the response has been uh, very, very positive. Mm. And to listeners, this is an informational podcast, not an investment podcast. So don't, don't take any of this as investment advice. We're just talking about things that are very fascinating and interesting. Uh, you mentioned a blockchain ETF. What, what goes inside a blockchain ETF? They're, yeah, no, that's a great question. Yeah, there are public companies that are blockchain companies. So that's a great question. Um, so if you look at some of the other blockchain funds that are out there that our competitors have created, what they would invest in would be cryptocurrency mining companies that are publicly traded. So there's a few of those out there in Canada. Um, there are companies that have more or less changed their business models. So I don't know if you heard about this last uh, year and a half ago where Long Island Iced Tea Corporation changed their name from Long Island Iced Tea to Long Island Iced Tea Blockchain. No, I've never heard of that. Yeah, and then the stock just shot up uh, significantly, despite the fact that there was no business model. They basically was a uh, beverage company that decided to pivot and become a blockchain company overnight by changing their name. And immediately everybody was jumping on a bandwagon. Oh, yeah, there's a a new blockchain company in town. Um, So... Those are some of the crazy types of companies that are being packaged into some of these other blockchain funds. So we've gone a very, very different route. Something that's more protected for investors, something that's more defensive, longer term thinking and, and more sustainable in that we went through a patents approach. So our fund is actually called the Coin Capital uh, Stocks Blockchain Patents Innovation Index Fund. And what we do with that fund is we partner with an artificial intelligence provider And what that partner does for us is every quarter, they look through the global patent databases of companies who have actually issued and filed blockchain patents. So these are legitimate companies that have put the capital to work to really secure that intellectual intellectual property um, and put in the research and R&D. So these are companies like JP Morgan, who is launching their own internal cryptocurrency. These are companies like Walmart, who are using, who is using, um, blockchain to really simplifies their supply chain processes and using blockchain to be able to track a produce from farm to the end grocery store and knowing exactly where that orange, for example, has been every step of the way on the blockchain, fully transparent to everybody, no way to really hack into it or, or um, you know, change the information around it. So our blockchain fund actually invests in those kinds of businesses, mature companies that are seriously looking for ways to improve their internal processes using blockchain technology. Another example that your listeners might uh, know about is a company called Live Nation who owns Ticketmaster. And Ticketmaster over the years have been under a lot of pressure to figure out the, you know, how do you 
um, prevent the scalping market from really taking over you know their, their their client base the secondary market they're actually using blockchain to be able to track and and put tickets essentially on the chain and you know keep it in a secure transparent way to minimize really that scalping impact so these are the types of companies that we're investing so not a direct pure play per se where it's like a cryptocurrency mining company we're actually putting into capital for blue chip companies that are putting uh, real R&D and research efforts into blockchain. Gotcha. And the, the way that you would, I guess, understand the involvement, involvement, the extent of involvement these companies have in blockchain, I guess it's mainly from public disclosures, right? Since these are big public companies. Yes, correct. Public disclosure and also being able to, um, you know, look through the patents, uh, actually, you know, digging into the database and figuring out, you know, is this legitimately a blockchain patent? Because when a company files a patent, it's not going to say necessarily blockchain on it. So it's looking for a lot of specific keywords and processes, for example, distributed ledger technology, or something to do with a decentralized processing that's around a network. Um, so very specific keywords, and that's what our artificial intelligence partner looks for, uh, to make sure that what they've found is actually a true blockchain patent, as opposed to you know something completely different. So that's why that partnership uh, that we have with this AI partner it's extremely important to how you know the fund really operates, and we you know we we did a lot of um, I guess discovery with this company in the in, in in when we were constructing this fund to really make sure that you know we do all the testing. We went back you know five years to make sure that the companies that uh, we're finding you know in these databases are actually legitimate blockchain uh, patents that these companies are offering. So there's a lot of process that we're in place before we get to kind of the final product. Got it. And choosing companies that have the blockchain patent, is it is it because there's the theory or at, at least a thesis that once they implement blockchain, they're going to be able to grow much faster or more effectively? Um, what is the thesis behind? Yeah, so there, there are actually two, two ways to look at it. Um, but I'll start with the fact that, you know, intellectual property, the protection of a company's intellectual property and the monetization of that intellectual property is being becoming more and more important in today's world where a lot of technology companies are, are are so focused on creating innovation and making sure to protect it so that you know the next company can come come around and really start infringing on that on that on that product offering so self-preservation already is kind of one factor to it in that if technology if that technology is your bread and butter you need to do whatever you need to do to really protect that and monetize that to really defend your your moat uh, to make sure that your competitive advantage is really being able to sustain on a go forward basis so right off the bat companies that are filing for patents in general and protecting their intellectual property is already strategically protecting their competitive advantage so that's kind of one thing that i would say right off the bat um, and monetizing it it's a it's kind of the next step of that process um, but what I would say with blockchain specifically is that a lot of the financial services companies today specifically has seen that blockchain has come a long way in terms of uh, disruptive use cases. You know, whether it's simplifying a lot of their clearing and settlement processes or cross-border payment processes, companies are finding ways to use blockchain for that. And as of now, I think what we're finding is that banks, financial institutions, supply chain companies, what they're doing is a lot of the processes currently today are very expensive and time consuming. 
um, because it's centralized. They may have to go to a third party um, or different parties to find data on, on you know, their, to, to figure out what their processes are. For example, Walmart. Um, you know, if they're not tracking their own internal logistics and, and supply chain um, processes, they may need a third party to be able to track all that data and they're paying somebody to do that. So by creating their own blockchain technology and, under, and private blockchain, they're able to take a lot of these different parties that, are, that have kind of centralized databases and be able to create their own decentralized database and really kick out a lot of the middleman that's involved in all these different type of processes. So really from a cost reduction perspective, blockchain is probably the number one priority right now for these companies to be able to figure out, is there a way to kick out the middleman, pay less fees, simplify processes using this technology? So I would say at this current point in time, that's what a lot of these industries are doing, really trying to cut out costs. And when you cut out costs, it goes straight to the bottom line and you can then you know, see potential earnings growth. But I think that over the next let call it a decade or so, is when they could potentially monetize on these uh, on these patents and on the intellectual property through maybe a licensing deal with another partner. Let's say um, Live Nation, you know, has these patents in um, in blockchain that could figure out how to track the secondary market and and you know um, scalping of tickets and prevent that from happening. They could actually license that patent to somebody else who may see that value in that patent. And then you have a new revenue stream. You now have a licensing stream. Um, and then there's other potential opportunities is that at some point they create such a, a broad portfolio of technology patents, they could actually then sell off that patent portfolio to another partner and really focus on what their core business is while still continuing to, continue to stay in partnership with that other company. And one of the more, more recent examples is not in blockchain, is Fossil, who makes watches, uh, recently sold off their uh, smartwatch patent portfolio to Google. And Google is going to basically take over this patent portfolio and Fossil can continue to focus on its really core business, which is you know, building watches and making that luxury brand whole. But they just happened to have created these patents around smartwatch that Google really could, could explore in terms of growing that business. So now they have this partnership in place um, and that's kind of how I see that, how blockchain patents could work too. At some point in the next decade, uh, some of these companies that are, have heavily invested in these blockchain patents could eventually say, you know what, that's not really our core business, but we're happy to partner with somebody else who can take these patents and technology to the next level. So there's basically looking, you know, kind of wrapping this all up. Um, so really there are three reasons why blockchain and, and patents and IP work is that first you're protecting your brand your competitive advantage through innovation and really protecting that that type of assets. Uh, second, from a cost reduction standpoint, really using blockchain to decentralize a lot of the processes that are out there um, to drive really earnings growth. And then finally, you have the revenue opportunity to be able to license those products and potentially even sell off that patent portfolio to a partner. Mm, got it. And you know, it's I guess this this is kind of where your background as a CS major and also an investor shine, where now you're kind of combining these and being able to see, you know, these two different spectrums and also married together. And the the first time we met, we talked about how when you were 13, you thought you your goal at that point was I'm going to be a comp sci major. I don't know how many 13 year olds think about that. And <laughs> what what did you imagine um, yourself doing um, with that? 
comes of age at that age? Was it even was it like the hot thing then? Was it even popular? You know, that's a great question. You know, back in the day, let's go back in the day. Uh, so yeah, when I was 13, that was many, many years ago. Um, you know, I think it really came about the fact that I was, you know, like a lot of people today, really interested in, in new and novel things. And technology at the time was still very much um, not really as part of our everyday lives as it is today. Um, you know, to date myself even more, you know, the Internet was just really coming to, to life back then. And I remember using the, you know, the dial-up uh, internet where you're, you know, calling into uh, a bell phone line in order to connect to the internet. And, you know, people can't use the phone if you're on the internet. And it was done through, uh, you know, a very uh, basic modem in which to download a picture probably took five minutes. Um, and I remember that I was so interested in, in, this, in this new technology where you could communicate with people um, across the world. I remember back then was when chat rooms were were very new um, you know i was able to talk to my friends who were uh, overseas maybe in hong kong uh, in the u.s and it was through a chat mechanism that you know before wasn't available so i think all of that really inspired me to really take this path to go into uh, the technology route and for me at the time i was thought you know computer science sounded like something that um you know i was going to be pretty good at you know i was a good math guy, you know, always when I was younger, um, having grown up in Hong Kong, there was a lot of intense education that, you know, happened specifically in mathematics. Um, so math always came very easily for me. And, you know, when I started looking at potential uh, school, uh, universities, um, you know, Waterloo obviously was on the top of my list in terms of a computer science program. And the fact that they were also very innovative as a university to offer one of the first to offer a co-op program. So that was kind of rare back in the day as well. I thought, wow, this is this is like, you know, probably the best route that I could take. It was a program that I was so interested in. I was good at the math behind it. And it offered an opportunity to do a co-op where I could potentially work with various different companies. There were six co-op terms uh, uh, during my, my tenure there. So I think that, you know, everything just kind of came together. And, you know, my dad at the time was also in technology. So that obviously helped. Uh, you know, drive a lot of that interest that I had, um, and you know, yeah, the the rest is history. Yeah, and I, I, I'm wondering um, from your parents' perspective. Uh, you talked about how previously before that you immigrated to Canada when you're ten, so the same age I did as well, and so I definitely could relate to that. Um, and I, f- I found though that I think they they call us kind of like the half generation where we kind of immigrate in, but we come at a young age where we're now kind of trying to assimilate into the Western culture while balancing the Asian culture as well. And I found that a lot of my my kind of peer group, they still had that early pressure of parents um, pushing them towards like more, quote unquote, considered stable jobs. And do you think that it was more so your father's background also in technology that kind of got them thinking, oh yeah, totally, Francisco, go down the tech route, it's, it's cool, it's fine. or Sometimes it could also be that I, I would imagine if it's, it was really hard for your father, they would kind of push you away from it and say, mm. no, it's not really ideal. You should go be an accountant or something like that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the Chinese culture is very interesting, or the Asian culture in general. Um, I would say my parents were fairly liberal in terms of they would let me do whatever I you know, I felt was the right thing to do or what, I, what my interests were. So they never actually forced me down any kind of routes, um, which, was, uh, which was great. Now, did they, did they have kind of inner doubts or inner concerns? I'm sure they did. 
um, you know, another story I have is um, it was really during the uh, time when I was going back to business school to do the MBA, um, where my parents were more concerned in that, you know, I was trying to make a career switch from computer science into, you know, the Bay Street finance world, um, you know, with, with really no experience, um, not a lot of connections in, in, in the personal network. Most of my friends were in more traditional industries. They were either engineers or accountants or lawyers or doctors, um, not really any kind of finance or you know, even startup guys. Um, and I think at the time, you know, my parents were worried that, you know, I was giving up a great job at IBM. I had been there for a number of years already. Um, you know, why are you taking the chance to, to do something, you know, that could fail, that you know nothing about? And you're doing it during 2008, 2009, when the world was falling apart. Um, so I, I'm sure my mom was very concerned and she kind of brought that up. Uh, I, yeah, I think I mentioned to you during our coffee chat, even my parents' neighbor was concerned because uh, he was a mentor at, uh, at Rodman and he had seen other, uh, other folks from the technical side of the world trying to make a switch into, into finance and he had seen that uh, kind of fail. So he was kind of trying to talk me out of it as well. And, you know, I'm of the personality that the more you try to talk me out of it, the more I'm going to try to make it happen just to just to prove to you that I can do it. Um, but at the time, yeah, I'm sure my parents concerned. But at the same time, they they knew that I was going to do whatever I was going to do. And there was really no way to stop it. And from that point forward, they tend to be, um, you know, just very supportive. Um, but at the same time, I'm sure they have a lot of inner thoughts about, oh, man, is he it, it, is my son actually going to be doing the right thing? Um, you know, he's, he's giving up the safety net of working with a large technology company, um, possibly you know, giving up, you know, two years of income to do the MBA and then trying to make a switch into a career that may not even work out. So I'm sure they had concerns, but, uh, you, know, you know, things worked out. Yeah. And um, as we get, you know, we will definitely go deeper into that. But I think if we looked at kind of the higher level picture, yeah, you did. Waterloo CompSci, and then for full time you ended up doing IBM for a number of years, like I think close to like six years, mm-hmm. and then you did your MBA at Rotman, and then you did obviously make it into the finance finance uh, world, and it's a success story where <laughs> you um, you interned at Claris, and then you went to BMO, mm-hmm. um, you went to Sentry to go from the sell side to the buy side, and now you're uh, Coin Capital, and the way we kind of go back to your CompSci days, you, so in Waterloo, like, as you know, there's six co-op terms. Mm-hmm. So you, it's kind of like, you know, six guaranteed short-term relationships in a sense. Yeah, And yeah. you have to test a lot of different things out. And I remember you were telling me about how you had this one co-op term at a startup. And it was the most fun you've ever had. And that you just loved that co-op term specifically. But then you spent three co-op terms at IBM. Well, what made you uh, decide against pursuing that startup, uh, any co-op like that startup world again? And go into big blue yeah no that's a great question um so my first couple of co-op terms out of waterloo was in banks so again large organization where you know there's like so many different levels of management um you're just a you know small cog in a big wheel um and then i really wanted to try something a little bit different um so i joined a startup at the time that was trying to do something quite disruptive it was um you know we take we take for granted online payments and how easy we can pay our bills online nowadays but if you go back you know 10 15 years ago that was not a very common thing to do you still have to take your bill go to an atm go to a bank um you know pay your bills there and online billing was not something that was uh, that was very prevalent like today 
Um, so when I joined that online bill payment company, it was about you know, a, a company of about 20 people. Um, there were about four of us that were co-op students at the same time. And we all came from different programs in different years, so that was very interesting. Uh, so I was, you know, in, at that time I was in my second year uh, computer science program. There was someone else who was in their first year um, computer engineering program. Then there were another person who was in their fourth year computer science program. And then there was another guy also in their fourth year computer engineering program. So it was a very diverse kind of group, despite the fact that we were in similar programs with different experiences, our personalities are very different, but we just all ended up became such good friends in that work term and working in such a kind of cohesive environment where it was a small company, everybody knew each other, everybody worked collaboratively. We all had kind of the big dream of taking this this dot-com company to the next level, despite the fact that we were only there for four months, um, but it was so exciting. And then uh, my next work time, I figured, okay, I'm gonna try a larger technology company because I work at two banks. I worked at a small startup tech company. I'm gonna try a larger technology company. So at the time I was considering um, like a Microsoft. I was considering a Cisco um, and then IBM also came about. And IBM at the time was, was such a good organization that really invested in its, in its students. It has such a large student community within where I was. Um, I think we had at the IBM Software Lab, so this is up in Markham, um, the lab can fit somewhere in you know, 5,000 uh, employees. And I think there were probably two, 300 students you know, within, that, within that whole space. Um, there were students from Waterloo, from U of T, from York, from Western, and, and you know, any university you can think of. Um, and I really enjoyed that environment as well in that there was a large student community um, there were so many different roles that you could tap into. You know, at the startup, you kind of, you know, you're hired for a very specific role because everybody needs to fill a particular purpose. You need, you need to either be a developer or a database administrator or, or, or marketing or something else. Um, whereas at IBM, I think I, I saw so many potential opportunities to jump into a different role. So even though I did three work terms there, every work term that I had was very different, one, you know, very different from the other. Uh, my first one I remember was at a was part of IBM DB2. So this is a database team, and you know working in that team was so different than my next couple of terms after, which was in a kind of a middleware, uh, web sphere server, web services type environment, and that was all very, very different. And um, and it just so happens that you know around the time that I was in that second last work term, um, you know we were going into a recession. So this was just after September 11th. Um, and, you know, the world was scared. Um, and, you know, students like me who was about to graduate, um, trying to look for a job was also, you know, kind of scared. And I think fear actually, you know, keeps us uh, from doing a lot of things we want to do. Um, and so I think at the time, you know, I was young, I was like, you know, 18 or, you know, 20, um, you know, trying to secure a full-time position. and you know, IBM, because I really enjoy my time there and the managers were all great and they offered me that full-time position before I, I graduated. I thought, wow, you know, why would I kind of look the gift horse in the mouth? You know, here's a, you know, one of the, IBM is one of the best, you know, one, most well-known brands in the world, lots of opportunities internally. Um, so I didn't even consider at that point looking elsewhere. Um, so it was a combination of like securing a position um, in a company that I really enjoy working at. Um, and seeing that opportunity available that I, you know, was kind of a no-brainer to me at the time. Mm. And over the years, it seems that your mindset started shifting and you started getting curious uh, back to that 
I think younger mindset of okay I think the fear has been kind of squashed off mm-hmm. with what else could be out there and you told me about how when you were even thinking of going into an MBA you were also prepping for law school as mm-hmm. well so what what was the mindset that you were going through at that point what were the steps of like, determining okay I met I, I've been at IBM for you know how many years and yeah. now you're thinking MBA law school what why both <laughs> and yeah. yeah what were the steps yeah you know I think I'm I love to learn and I love to grow personally and also professionally I think if you don't grow and and you stay stagnant um, I don't think that's positive really necessarily to yourself and you kind of you kind of doing a disservice to yourself and, and your organization and the people and your friends and everybody you're working with um, so when I had been an IBM for a number of years I was starting to feel that I wasn't getting as much personal development as I feel I could have been getting and the interest in what I was doing was starting to deviate from what I felt I was really starting to get a lot of other interest in. Um, so one of my co-op terms during you know school before I went back to before I joined IBM was on the Bank of Montreal trading floor. Um, and that was during the dot-com bubble of 2000 um, as well as the collapse of 2001. Um, and you know I found a lot of excitement and a lot of energy and a lot of um, I, I started discovering that passion for really trying to figure out how businesses work, what gives them value, and how do we actually identify whether going forward that a company was going to be able to drive value with its strategy that is currently implementing, with its different growth opportunities that it's seeking. So I think it was during my time at IBM that I really started getting really involved in uh, you know, looking at companies, not necessarily stocks uh, specifically, but looking at companies and how they work. And, you know, I started reading a lot of, um, you know, papers and, and and journals and seeing, you know, success stories of how um, a lot of entrepreneurs were able to build businesses um, just simply with an idea and executing on it. Um, so it was that, around that time where I felt like, okay, you know, I can sit at this desk at IBM and, you know, continue to have a, you know, decently good job um, a stable position, um, you know, a little bit of growth here and there, but not a lot. Or I can go outside of my comfort zone and really find something else that I was really interested in. And at the time, I was interested in, you know, as you mentioned, both law and, and the MBA. Um, and law was always interesting to me because I, you know, I, I loved that aspect of it. I took law courses in university. Um, that was something that I really feel like, um, you know, I did have a little bit of passion for. Um, so I started looking at um, writing the LSAT and see if it was possible at that time to really make that switch into law, while at the same time also looking at the GMAT to figure out whether I can actually um, you know, find a way to learn more about the business side of the world. Um, and you know, and honestly, you know, I, didn't t- I didn't go the law school path was because it was simply, it was gonna take too long. You know, it was, I would have to go through, you know, a few years of law school, then go through the articling process and then really figure out whether I want to specialize in something. Uh, whereas with the MBA, I felt that I knew exactly what I would do if I were to go into that route, um, that I was interested in learning to be, uh, an, you know, a stock analyst into a portfolio manager. That was, that was going to be the path that I was going to follow. I, I knew that for sure. Um, it wasn't going to be consulting. It wasn't going to be... Um, you know, some marketing or healthcare specialization. I wanted to be uh, a portfolio manager. Um, so I think that was more clear to me. It was a clearer path and a more direct path. And that's kind of why I decided to really um, um, go to Rodman and, and do my MBA there. 
caught it. And you, in passing, you you did mention that in hindsight that you should have gone to a U.S. school. What what made you think that? What was there like a specific uh, instance? Um, I think it was just the opportunity. Um, there wasn't a specific instance really where I felt like, oh yeah, I should have done a U.S. school. It was more in hindsight, um, looking back that you know while I think. Rodman is great. I, I, there's, there's nothing bad you could say because I think Rodman has done an exceptional job of really growing its MBA program, especially over the last 10 years, expanding, you know, doubling its class size. Um, you know, when I was there, Dean Roger Martin did an exceptional job of, of really building the Rodman brand. Um, and I, I remember us consistently moving up the various MBA school rankings um, when I was there, and I was very proud as a student. Um, but I think really... Canada is a very small market. It's just it's just very very small. And really, if you were in looking to do finance, there's really just Toronto. You know, maybe a little bit on the west coast, um, but really just Toronto. Maybe Montreal to to a smaller extent, but it's very concentrated here. Um, and I felt that looking back, the U.S. there there's so many more you know larger firms, uh, so many more different types of organizations. Um, the Canadian, you know, traditional landscape, the investment landscape, tends to be more conservative. Um, there's definitely a lot more uh, different types of innovative offerings and innovative uh, strategies out in the U.S. For example, a lot more hedge funds, a lot more uh, venture capital, private equity type businesses that are, you know, still traditional finance, but they might be tapping into very different markets. And I think Canada as a whole was still at the time when I was kind of joining the Bay Street, Bay Street. Was still so focused on you know the sectors that it it knows so mining, you know energy, financials, and that's it. You know Canada, the Canadian you know, market is was made up and is made up of of those major sectors. Um, there's very little healthcare. There's very little technology. Um, you know consumer staples, discretionary. There's very very few of those industries. Whereas the U.S. market was significantly better. So I felt that. If I had kind of did my MBA um, in the United States, it may have opened my eyes more to the different types of roles and uh, and firms that I could have been you know, joining uh, versus Canada, where the market is very much dominated by the five big banks, um, and you know uh, there aren't that many independent firms really left. Uh, a lot, you know, I just came from Century, who was purchased by CI, and then the independence is starting to really fade out too. So I think there are a lot more independence, um, you know, in the U.S., but, you know, who knows? I, you know, I, don't, I don't really regret it. I think it's just something that I look back on thinking that maybe things would have been a little bit different if I considered doing MBA in the U.S. Yeah, and it, it's true, I think, um, from my experience as well, it's been very obvious that we also have a very some, somewhat, I think, unique kind of also the investment market as well, where we have giant pension funds which practically run most of the private uh, investment deal flow and it, it's it's weird because the canadian private uh like pension funds and investment funds they have a great reputation just globally as mm-hmm. just being very prudent and very well done but it's just yeah it is weird that it's still kind of a government entity that is doing yeah. all this and it's not private companies um, yeah. that are doing it and so it does change the game to some degree and also yeah. the kind of learning and also progression that you could see uh, but obviously, yeah, you did well for yourself. And despite going from that technical background to um, something that was completely different in finance, amidst you know the great financial crisis, I, I honestly I was very surprised when I heard that you know people would say that oh if you come from a technical background like, you won't be as successful because I think 
nowadays the world's kind of turned their eye and said, yeah, we want more quants. We want people who are confident. I, you know, when I was in my previous role, we were specifically looking for people who had mathematical backgrounds mm-hmm. and people were more aware of, of, yeah, I want someone who can process and crunch data, build models, all that. Do you think you were just way too early for the times? Yeah, I think the industry has changed a lot. I mean, this is, this was 10 years ago, uh, over 10 years ago when I was, I was uh, looking for a job on Bay Street. Um, and I think that was at the time where I think there was starting to be more focus on those that came from a technical background. Um, instead of say, oh, you had to, you know, had a finance or investment banking background and, um, you know, you had to have some kind of economics or commerce degree. Um, so I think a lot has changed, really. I, I, and I've seen that really evolved in the last 10 years. Um, so even when I was at IBM and, and then later on at Century, we were starting to look outside of that scope, too. Um, you know, looking to recruit those that actually have an engineering background or a computer science background, because those with that back that type of background brings a different set of skills, bring possibly a set of different types of intangibles, um, and and I think most importantly brings a different perspective. You know, someone who wasn't just trained from the ground up as an you know economics major to a finance major and then move on to a role in in banking or in in in, um, in, in an analyst role. But whereas someone who came from a completely different background, like ComSci or even healthcare or or a consumer background or even science background, um, it's it's it gives a completely different perspective, especially from the buy side investment standpoint. Um, you know, I, I remember one of the analysts at at Century actually came from a health sciences background, and he was looking at you know industrials, infrastructure type companies, and he did very well in it. You know, he took a very different perspective. He went from a very different route. When I did a CFA and you know got a role on the buy side, um, I think so. I think definitely nowadays uh, the industry has evolved to really looking outside a traditional commerce degree and really embracing everybody from different backgrounds who could add a very different perspective. Um, so I think when I was coming in there, they were starting to do that, but now it's definitely a lot more prevalent. Yeah, I, I think I honestly think even when they study like past great like investors, many of them come from unique backgrounds not many of them actually have a business background many actually have a philosophy degree they're very big in the humanities psychology some were doctors like Mm -hmm. michael burry was a doctor and i think it's just yeah like like you said it's more of the industries industries actually opening their eyes up to realize that yeah okay we need people with different perspectives and yeah in my previous work too people were phds from microbiology rocket scientists and the ability to i think think and have diverse perspectives it's so essential because essentially investing is a game of um, being able to think in a very different way from other people you have to be contrarian to actually make money and you can't do that unless you're multidisciplinary in your thinking and for you though it it seems that you also broke apart from that traditional also stigma of if you're a comp side person you're probably introverted Mm -hmm. because you told me about how you had 120 copies in like three months (laughs) because you just went through the whole alumni database and I, I think I resonated with that so well because for me as well, I despite being a business student, I still didn't fit the stigma of being a finance background person to get into the, the investing role. So I met a ton of um, hedge fund managers and buy side people, but definitely not as many as yourself. So how did that um, mindset like come about to actually build these relationships? And you also did emphasize it's not networking, it's actually building relationships. Correct, correct. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I think I understood exactly what it took to to kind of get in, get a get a role on Bay Street. It was it's such a relationship driven business, and you know, having come from 
you know, IBM, you didn't, I didn't necessarily um, really know how important that was until I started really my networking process during the MBA. And, you know, the tech sector is, at least traditionally, was very siloed. You know, you, you, as long as you have a degree in computer science or engineering or software engineering, um, and you have the credentials to back it up, you put your resume into a pile and and you're likely going to get a job. You know, there were there was enough demand for your for your expertise that there wasn't really that much of a need to say build relationships and and try to figure out whether you can get a job somewhere because you know somebody else. It was actually a lot more based on just strictly do you have the certifications? Do you have the training? Do you have the practical expertise to do it? If you do, we want you because you're just literally another cog in the wheel to keep the engine going. Um, and there wasn't really a lot of emphasis on that, on, on the relationship building part. So when I started really figuring out, um, you know, how do I transition from a computer scientist into, you know, a stock analyst, a portfolio manager? Well, first of all, I needed to meet these people. You know, I did not have any of uh, those personal connections. So I, you know, I started combing through the alumni database, looking for PMs, looking for analysts, and really getting a sense of, what is this really even a job that I want? You know, let's have that due diligence. Let's do that due diligence. Let's talk to these people, get to understand the role, the day to day, the career tra- trajectories. Um, you know, do they actually like their job, or do they just like it because they're getting paid, right? Um, so, you know, throughout the course of you know a few months, I met you know 150 different types of people, um, but all within the same industry, very different personalities, I would say, um, offering me, um, you know great diverse uh, opinions about you know what it takes to be successful in this business and I think I really enjoyed the networking aspect of it I think I think I didn't realize how much I really liked talking to people and you know getting an understanding of how they think how they work um, are they enjoying their you know their, their current work environment um, so I think it was the more coffee I did the more coffees I did with uh, coffee meetings I did um, the more I just kept going because I, I enjoyed it so much. And it got to the point where it wasn't really about, you know, trying to get a job or you know, get a good, make a good name for myself. It was more about really learning about people and then at building those relationships. And which is why I think I was successful later on in really securing a number of job offers is because I kept maintaining those relationships. Not because I needed to, it's because I actually wanted to. You know, I met a lot of interesting people and I wanted to keep in touch with them just to see how they're doing. Um, and stay friends and make friends and make contacts. Um, and that's, you know, that's how I ended up really um, getting, you know, all of my job offers. It was through these connections, through the networking. And it started really with a coffee. And what I always recommended to Rodman alumni and those in, in the program when, when we go for coffee is that build those, it's to build those relationships because those are going to be very important over time. Um, you know, and, and don't think about them as, like a meal ticket because that's not what they are they should be your personal network your professional network those that you know you can help them they can help you it, it you know create that kind of ecosystem where you have you know support from people from different industries where we help each other um and i think i learned a lot of that you know through my through the course of all that networking that i've done and you know i truly believe that today like i, I wouldn't i think i told you i would never turn down a coffee invitation anytime i get a random message on linkedin or through an email from like a Rodman student or even an Ivy student to do a phone call, do a coffee, I always say yes, because you know I I, be, I really believe in, in building our relationships. Mm-hmm. 
and yeah I, I i totally agree with it because yeah it's, it's the idea of paying it forward constantly right because yeah. if you didn't have those people who met you in the first place you might Absolutely. not be where you are and i think that's such a valuable thing that people should do to actually build relationships and also should also give back to if they've you know done the initial first act as well and i think the fascinating thing is how fascinating and also kind of also somewhat expected in that as you build these meaningful relationships that you know if you do the right thing and you can show passion in what you're trying to do that people will remember you and you know you got your uh, clarest opportunity in your first you know role in like equity research through a previous relationship the next opportunity at BMO came from that you know building up relationships and how did you have some kind of like system that you were trying to keep inside of your head where Oh, every six months, I want to reach back out to this person and just remind them, this is where I'm at, this is what I'm doing, how are you doing, do you want to grab a coffee? Like, As your network grows, as you've met like 150 people, how did you maintain all that? And I think that's something I'm just personally struggling with as well because mm. I've been meeting so many people through mm-hmm. the podcast and everything, and I want to keep in contact with everyone, but also not everyone's busy. And so <laughs> I don't want to constantly message them and say, hey, do you want to catch up again in mm-hmm. every like three month periods so what was your kind of system yeah i had a very low tech system initially um it was a it was a spreadsheet it was a very simple spreadsheet where i um tracked every single one of my meetings um i dated it i you know have comments in terms of how that meeting went types of conversations that i had with with that particular person during the meeting um whether i felt that there was any rapport um whether i felt that there could be a potential opportunity to really follow up and maintain that relationship. And I kind of rank that accordingly. And then I will also uh, mention in, in that spreadsheet whether I should be following up within like a three month time frame, a one month time frame, a six month time frame, a one year time frame. So it's kind of a self created ranking system that I had uh, for a long time. I, I actually used that spreadsheet for a very, very long time. And then I think I then I think it was around that time where LinkedIn became a lot more, you know, user friendly and more more useful. Um, so that's definitely a tool that I, I rely on a lot more today, where I, I would actually, um, probably on a kind of a monthly basis or even one or two months basis, I would actually look through every single one of my connections and look at you know whether someone had started a new role, they had changed jobs, um, whether someone you know moved, moved to a different city to work, um, someone I haven't talked to for a long time, and I would actually make a point of reaching out, you know, you know someone recently that I knew um, you know, switch a different role. So I would make a make a point of uh, sending a message and say, "Hey, how's it going? Let's let's chat. Let's grab a coffee." Um, you know, in fact, yesterday one of my uh, former co-op students, you know, messaged me. I haven't talked to her for maybe a year or so. Um, she has just gotten an offer from um, you know one of the largest pension funds in the country, and then she's coming to me for a reference. So I think LinkedIn has has really turned into such a useful tool for you know everyone to stay connected professionally. Um, to, be able to, to be able to stay in touch with people. So my system nowadays is just, I actually go through that list pretty regularly and be able and, and, you know, and take the initiative to reach out. And I think a lot of the times people don't do that, um, despite the fact that, you know, we're, we're all busy people. Um, I think we should take, a, take our time, you know, one day a month to really look through our, our Rolodex of, of contacts to see those of us that, you know, we had meaningful relationships and meaningful relationships within the past that we haven't talked to for a long time to really take that effort to reach out. I mean, it only takes a minute to send a quick message to somebody that you may not have spoken to in the last year and make that reconnection. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of us sometimes are just 
too absorbed in our own day to day that we're neglecting to to build that um, and maintain that relationship. Um, so that that you know, I'm guilty of that too, and I would like to do more of that. Um, but that's something that I I really would encourage you know everybody out there to 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 keep and build and maintain those relationships. Yeah, definitely. I'm 100% on board with that as well. And so through through those building of relationships, you get into you know the finance world despite the odds, and eventually move into the buy side, the you know, I guess the green grass where you <laughs> quote unquote where you know now you get to be a portfolio manager, you're managing funds, and it like I for me when I got there it was like oh, nice, I got the dream job, I can retire here, and I'm wondering did that go through your mind as well, and when did the kind of curiosity and like the shift start happening again yeah you know when you know when i start when i was hired at century as as an associate portfolio manager i was like wow this is this is it you know this is a i you know worked so many years to kind of get to this point and now i'm on on a on a team that i really love um on a mandate that was very exciting it was global equities um covering technology industrials all across the globe and it was just so very 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 exciting and even actually, you know, till the day that I left, I was still pretty passionate about what I was doing. Like, it, it, I really enjoyed looking at companies, um, trying to figure out what, you know, what the, whether the strategies actually provided value for the shareholders. I love having meetings with uh, the CEOs and CFOs, really get an understanding of their view on their businesses. Um, and, you know, attending global conferences every year, really get a sense of what other investors are thinking. Yeah, I hear from you know senior management teams of other companies like Alibaba, Facebook, and Alphabet, and and, and Qualcomm and Cisco. Um, so I really did enjoy that. But I think it got to the point where I felt that looking at companies, seeing how they work, I was doing it from the sidelines, and I was at, I was reaching a point where I feel like I want to be a part of that. I want to learn how to you know start something from scratch how to build something, you know, build a business into, into something that I could be, you know, saying that, you know, I did that. Um, rather be kind of a third party standing on the side, looking at financial documents, looking at presentations, talking to the people who actually build these businesses to actually be the one that, um, you know, could participate and, and, and start one. Um, so that's when I really started thinking to myself whether um, this entrepreneur bug was really starting to bite. Um, that I really should, you know, use the rest of my life to really figure out, you know, do I want to sit in this desk and, and evaluate companies rather than just participate and, and start my own and start running my own business. Um, so that was, you know, that, that was kind of that, that clicking point where I felt I needed, need, I had that itch to really do something a little bit different. Um, so I started kind of looking at potential opportunities to join organizations or even come up with my own ideas. Um, to to figure out is there something I could do, and as luck would have it, I you know end up connecting with uh, Lewis Bateman, who is who is you know the CEO of Coin Capital, and at the time he was looking for a partner to to build out the Coin Capital uh, or asset management business of Coin Square, and it you know we just clicked you know in our initial conversation where it was simply you know I was the right fit you know he was the right fit the business was the right fit the model was everything that we wanted to do. Um, it was something that was disruptive to the space. We're looking to launch not only traditional technology funds, but also cryptocurrency funds and different types of offerings. And it was just so exciting to be able to to jump into something from the ground up um, and and see it come to fruition. Um, and yeah, it was just it was just 
it's just that excitement of being able to participate in the development and growth of something, some something rather than um, be watching on the side. And yeah, I remember you told me how your interview with Lewis was only like an hour and a half, and after that, you guys just practically knew that, you know, Lewis was saying, "Yeah, I want you to come work for me." Um, but to get to that kind of quick decision-making point, I'm I'm wondering, did you have a prior mental model that you had already kind of built out from maybe like another 120 conversations where you were kind of just ruminating over, okay, this is the idea, this is the mm-hmm. dream case. So then when you actually came to Coin Capital, like mm-hmm. Mendo said, you knew exactly it met up. I think I'm always, I'm always thinking. Like, I, you know, one of the things is my mind just processes nonstop. Like, um, I, you know, sometimes I wish I could actually shut it down a little bit, but it's all, I'm always just always thinking. Um, and every day I'm thinking, you know, how do I grow personally? How do I grow professionally? How do I make those around me better? How do I make the world better? So those are kind of things that I think about pretty much every second of the day. And I also know that, you know, there are steps to get to certain things. Like, if, you know, if my end goal was to make a significant imp- impact to the world for whatever reason, uh, however way to do it. Um, there are probably steps to doing it. I'm not just going to wake up the next day and all of a sudden I'm making a meaningful impact to the world. There are likely steps to that. Um, so, you know, I think right now, I, 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 you know, when I started looking at expanding outside the, the, the buy side and looking for ways to build something on my own, I think I was trying to figure out, you know, where can I actually do that? You know, how do I develop my skill sets for that? Is it a trial by experience? Is it a trial by fire? And I felt that, you know, having that conversation with Lewis and really digging into what, you know, the plan is, how we're going to change, you know, the way that, you know, the world works. Um, it was just, there was just so many things I could learn. I, I could feel in that one and a half hour conversation that there was just so much learning that I could absorb um, that, you know, there was no question that I was going to just jump at it. Um, and, you know, despite how hard it may be to leave, uh, you know, a, a nice Bay Street job, um, I had no second thoughts. It was you know the minute that I knew that the job offer was on the table, I there was no debate in my mind because I knew that this is what I needed to do, um, and I you know there was there was a lot of so much I could learn, you know w- working with Lewis and and building this business from scratch that um, yeah nothing was keeping me there, there was no second thoughts in my mind there was not no mental model no 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 ex- external processes I was just ready to pounce because I realized at that moment that, um, you know, there was just so much I could learn um, from, you know, from scratch and building this business. And, you know, a year later, I think, you know, next week is my one year anniversary uh, with Coin Capital and and Coin Square. And we've just gone through so much uh, uh, positive, uh, you know, experiences, you know, having um, submitted our business plans to the regulator, getting registered. Uh, by the OSC as an IFM uh, investment fund manager, portfolio manager, exam market dealer. Then uh, a couple of months later, launching our funds, uh, opening the market at the TSX, you know, ringing the bell. Um, and then now we're in full development of other uh, new exciting offerings, um, you know, doing a lot of tons of marketing to really get our brand out there. I mean, we've done so much in the last year that I would have never been able to do or experience if I just kind of stuck with what I was doing. Um, you know, in my previous role. And I think it's, you know, you, you kind of say it in passing, but I think it, I want to kind of emphasize how hard of a decision it could be for many other people to 
leave something that is a very cushy buy side job. Like I still have friends there that still talk about how it's just really hard to leave it when it's practically you know if you're good and you stay, you're guaranteed this really cushy like millionaire life. Mm-hmm. And you know it's you're seeing. I think you know you talked about how you have a north star and you're constantly following that and constantly keeping that in the back of your mind as you're making decisions. And things have been working out. And I think when they look at a high level, someone could just look at it and go, oh yeah, everything's worked out for this guy. But I can only imagine that there are also just pockets of like adversity and obstacles. And so for you, what kind of big um, failure did come up to mind where you experienced it, it sucked, but it was just that kind of tipping point that you needed to just uh, push yourself and become like way better. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I can trace that back to you know, trying to find a job during my MBA to make that career switch. I think that was actually the inflection point in, in my life as a whole of how um, if you put in the effort and really f- uh, focus on what your goals are, um, that you know you could do anything. And I think that was when, you know, you know the 150 coffee chats that I did during those few months was not easy. Um, everybody around me, those that had experience, were getting jobs, you know, getting internships. Um, and I, at the time, was, you know, trying to figure out, is this career switch really going to work out? Um, and, you know, there were doubts, but I, at no point did I stop that focus. Um, you know, the, the summer internship at the time began in May, and I was still doing my coffee chats uh, in April. You know, trying to figure out, is there a way I can still, you know, get something for the summer? And and there, it was just continuous perse- like perseverance, like hammering you know, meetings every single day. You know, I'm in school full time at the time, and trying to figure out how to um, navigate between you know the studies and then making time to you know get into a suit, go down to Bay Street, um, you know meet for coffee with somebody, make a good impression, and then build and maintain that relationship. And I think um, there was a lot of failure there because you know I went through. Um, interviews. I did have interviews for summer internship um, with reputable firms, and I, I just could not close the deal. Like I was able to get through the first round of interviews, get to the second round, some even to the final round. Um, but at the very end, I end up always losing out to somebody who, you know, either had a CFA already or had some kind of great experience or, or knew somebody. Um, so there was there was a ton of failure that I went through, um, even during you know the full time recruiting. Um, you know, I, again, had probably 10 to 13 different interviews where I got through to the final rounds like three or four times, still couldn't get that job offer right at the very end. Um, and, you know, four months before graduation, I still didn't have a full-time job. Um, and then Clara, you know, came around and I was able to, um, it was because of relationship. You know, I had built a relationship with an analyst at Claris. Um At the time, an associate had just left and she asked me if I wanted to come in for that interview. And I went into a three-round interview interview process it was still you know not a guarantee it was like you had to go through three rounds um and you know ended up getting that offer but you know they wanted me to start right away they wanted me to start pretty much you know that january late january time frame and i was in school full time um i think you know i mentioned to you i had to move all my courses to the evening so i did a full you know 12 hour sell side job then uh you know did classes in the evening Started back at 6 a.m. the next day, and we had earnings season, and where you know I'm up to like you know, midnight, 1 a.m., and I had to go back to go back to work the next day, and then go back to school. 
uh, this wasn't easy. You know, that, that, that was some very challenging uh, months and years that I had to really put in to really get to where I, you know, end up ultimately getting to be. Um, and, you know, the challenges now that we have is, uh, you know, building a business from scratch is not easy. You know, building coin capital from scratch is not easy. And given that we're in, in a cryptocurrency space as well, um, there's stigma, you know, in, in, in cryptocurrency, especially given what we've seen in the last couple of years where um, the euphoria of crypto led to, led to Bitcoin hitting $20,000 US. A lot of, you know, retail investors jumped in. Then they ended up, you know, losing a lot of their money when the, when the cryptocurrencies um, end up falling 70 80%. Um, and, and it's a challenge building, you know, a business that doesn't have any precedence. You know, we are very closely working with the regulators to figure out how to possibly work in a part as a partnership going forward, um, because everybody's new to this. Um, there's a lot of education that we have to be able to provide to the regulators, to clients, to partners, to really give them a sense of that there's a true opportunity and a true business here that we could actually work together to to legitimize instead of being a stigma uh, of someone who, you know, of people who don't understand exactly what cryptocurrencies are. So even today, you know, we have challenges in figuring out how to really spread the word of, of what we're trying to do and how this could actually change the world going forward. And could you give me like an example of how you're trying to make it work amongst all this ambiguity and like how you're trying to educate people? Is there is an example that kind of comes to mind? Yeah, yeah. So we're doing a lot of what I would say um, right now, educating our retail investment advisor community in that um, a lot of advisors in Canada. So I'm talking about some, you know, some of the branch owned advisors like an RBC wealth management you know, advisor, or BMO one, um, where, you know, this is not first nature to them, where you, you show them a product that they may not necessarily understand that they may have heard about, um, but they don't know how to differentiate between, say, blockchain and cryptocurrency. Um, and then what we do is we actually go in with a very uh, open mind, knowing that they don't really understand necessarily technology and the use cases behind it. And we would then, um, you know, walk through the entire technology explanation of why, you know, blockchain is such an important technology, how crypto and blockchain is very different, um, you know, I actually give them very simple examples. Look, cryptocurrency is a first use case of the blockchain technology, similar to years ago when Napster, uh, the file music sharing software, was the first use case of peer-to-peer file sharing. And how, you know, Napster was also stigmatized back in the day. And now everything that we do today is, is it's file sharing, whether it's a streaming, whether it's sending files on Messenger or WhatsApp or Facebook Messenger. Um, and that's how we see, you know, blockchain and crypto. Crypto is just one use case, but you can understand that blockchain has a lot of use cases and facilitations. Um, so this is a lot of education. We do a lot of presentations. Um, we try to make our, our, our brand known. Um, and on a weekly basis, I actually publish a Coin Capital Tech Pulse where we try to educate our, you know, readers and end clients um, the different types of trends that's happening in technology, things that, and themes that they should be focusing on. Um, you know, our first edition was in January, where I talked about use cases in blockchain. Our second edition in February, I was discussing various themes in biotechnology. Um, some of the things that are very exciting in, in the world today, like CRISPR and uh, immuno-oncology, for example. And then this uh, one coming up in March, I've actually just finished writing it this morning, we'll actually be talking about patents. 
and you know monetizing patents and how patents actually protects innovation and, and further fuels innovation in technology. So I think we're using different types of avenues to really educate everyone in terms of what we're trying to do, what we're about, what the Coin Capital brand really is, um, and that you know we should be the go-to technology investment you know fund manager. Hmm. And if if I relate back to just how the time is spent um, as I'm trying to contrast your time as an investor in public equities now to being an investor and also an operator of a you know still an asset manager but a different kind of industry altogether in a sense like as a public equity investor I would say my time around like fifty percent was fifty to sixty percent is just purely on learning conversations with managers reading tons of annual reports industry reports and then maybe about 30 percent of the time just looking into space just thinking and ruminating and 10 percent just executing when you just call the trade or have a meeting decide are we gonna buy it cool let's buy it or sell it etc you um, before we recorded you talked about how most of your days now are like very sales and marketing so how does your uh, time bucket look and is is that the time bucket you kind of expected um, coming in from such a different role yeah no that's a great question Um, I would say my time today is probably split about um, you know 40-50% marketing trying to figure out um, you know what works for our products educating our end clients and investors really getting our brand and developing our brand out there. And that's that's very important because we are new and our products are different than what's out there. That that education is such an important piece. So that's why a lot of my time right now is focused on that. Um, and then I would say another 30% is probably still involved really in the product development side. What are the types of funds that really we should be putting on the market? Is it you know venture capital fund? Is it a incubator? product? Is it private equity? Is it more ETFs that are focused on different types of niches and thematic places? Is it a cryptocurrency product? Um, so there's a lot of thought that we're still doing today that I'm doing today with my team on product development. So that's about 30% of my time. And then I would say there's probably another 10% of my time on the operational side of, of trades, execution, uh, making sure that you know all of our processes are, are in place. Um, and thankfully, I have, you know, one of my, our associate director in, in trading really helps me handle a lot of that, a lot of that, uh, a lot of that work. Um, and then I would say the remaining of the time is really, um, you know, on the strategic side. You know, how do we continue to grow this business? What are the different types of avenues for growth? Um, and we're working with a number of different ideas right now that I think are actually very exciting, which obviously I can't talk about. Um, but yeah, my time is very very full with a lot of different things and it's probably probably what i kind of expected i would say um when i first started that uh, because we are a startup um that you know one person ends up doing a lot of different types of responsibilities that they may not have expected that they would do and we're a very lean team as well um so everybody kind of shares into into the shared pool of work but i would say everybody does have an expertise you know i have my associate director of trading who handles really the operational side of the business. I have our head of business development who really handles the relationship um, side of booking us, booking us meetings, getting us presentations, um, you know, getting us out there. Uh, you know, Lewis as our CEO really uh, works a lot with the strategic side, trying to figure out all the different types of partnerships that we could have, um, potential deals that we could sign with partners, um, and also participating in the offering 
and myself as as the managing partner and the PM, really on the marketing product product development um, side. That's what you know. Seventy percent of my time is really focused on. And on the on the theme of um, expectations, uh, as we're also kind of wrapping up to the end of our interview, um, if the uh, the twenty year old Francisco who had just accepted that offer from Big Blue were to look at what you're doing right now. What do you think that Francisco's like emotional reaction would be? Would would it be that, oh, I kind of expected it, or what else uh, do you think is going to be going through that Francisco's yeah. head? Yeah, no, another great question. I think I think the twenty year old would be very surprised um, where you know the the forty year old is sitting today, um, and uh, you know a lot of it was because every journey on this journey, you know, every different types of experience I had, every different role that I was at shape the person that I am today, right? If I, you know, if I didn't go to IBM, uh, I may not have gone to, you know, done the MBA, may not have made the career switch. Um, if I wasn't, you know, um, at Century covering technology and really reinvigorated my view on how, you know, entrepreneurial uh, entrepreneurs and people are really building different companies now, um, I may not be here today as well. So I think that journey was so important. Um, I wouldn't change a thing. To be honest, um, I might look back and say, "Yeah, maybe you know, gone to a U.S. MBA school," but you know, honestly, I wouldn't have changed a thing, and because I, I wouldn't be uh, the person that I am today and the lessons I've learned today without all those different pieces um, and, and all those different relationships that I built through all the years as well. Um, and who knows what's going to happen? You know, the, the sixty-year-old might look back now and thinking that, you know, wh- wow, what, we, what were you thinking back then? Um, so it re- remains to be seen. You know, hopefully, there's still a lot of stories to tell. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think this is a great place to kind of uh, end our interview. And so before we close off, um, I wanted to give you an opportunity to kind of help our listeners um, guide their way into if they want to learn more about Coin Capital and what you guys do, how, how could they learn more about it? Where should they go? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so our website is uh, www.coincapfunds.com, where you can learn about, uh, about product offerings and, and get an understanding of what we're trying to do. Um, and I'm always happy to to do a coffee chat. So any of our, any of Dan's listeners, if they want to reach out to me through LinkedIn, uh, send me a quick message. If you want to learn more about the business, I'm sure we can figure out a time where we can meet. And if you want to learn about more about the funds, myself, or anything else about the industries that I've been in, I'll be more than happy to have that conversation. All right, excellent. Thanks for that offer, Francisco. And thanks for so much for uh, coming on the podcast and sharing your story. Thank you, Dan. Thanks for having me. All right, bye. So thanks for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, please check out other episodes and don't forget to subscribe to stay up to date for the future episodes. Also, I would really appreciate it if you would leave a review on iTunes, Google Play or Stitcher, whichever is applicable to you. To see past episodes, you can go to oldmandan.com slash podcast. Also, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter on my blog, oldmandan.com slash newsletter. You can stay up to date with future podcast episodes that way and included in the newsletter are my book reviews I write, my weekly article in the related to the domain of self-development systems, as well as seven things I learned throughout the week on being healthy, wealthy, and wise. Finally, special thanks to icons8.com for allowing me to use their music, Tiny People, on the podcast. Great. I will see you all next time. Take care.